Well, good morning. Um, if I didn't say it earlier, my name is Slim. I'm one of the pastors here at Mosaic. Um, and today, uh, we're going to be going f- from devastation to restoration and discover the path to joy. And so from devastation to restoration and discover the path to joy. Now, you might say, the path to joy? Uh, that feels like a very ambitious thing to say um, because you can find joy in a lot of things. Like you can say, I'm, I found joy with my friends. We hung out last night. It was, it was a great time. Um, or you might say, um, when I saw that person that I don't like lose, I found quite a bit of joy in that, <laughs> right? But sometimes friends fight, and sometimes that, that person wins. Um, and, and so we, we wonder, is there a joy that will last Is there a joy that will endure the test of time? And so today I want to draw our attention to Isaiah 34 and 35, and I know it doesn't sound like a place where you would uh, go to to find joy at first, because it it represents um, this vivid contrast between the judgment of God and the restoration of his people. The judgment of God and the restoration of his people. And these two chapters could not be more different. They are very, very different chapters, um, but they are meant to go together. Like one is a desert, the other is a garden. One is an inferno, the other is is a paradise. And Isaiah means for these two chapters to be read together because they're going to take us from devastation to restoration and discover the path of joy. Now, the path we're going to take here today, the three points of the sermon, you know, i got to alliterate. Uh, we're going to go with justice, joy, Jesus, all right? <laughs> justice, joy, Jesus, Battlestar Galactica. This is the path, all right? Justice. We all crave justice. We all want justice. We, we, and in a sense, we all know it innately. Uh, we, we would say it fairness. And I think every kid knows what's fair and what's not fair right? You step on my toe, I step on your toe. I want justice. And I should also slap you in the face because, you know, the fact that you did it in the first place, right? Um, We all kind of want justice. We get that. But when you read Isaiah 34, if you get a chance to read all of it, when you read all of Isaiah 34, um, I don't care who you are. There's something about it that feels, that feels over the top. It feels devastating, and it is. Chapter 34 is devastating. It's a rough chapter. Like we're told in verse 2, the Lord is angry with who? All of the nations, (laughs) just all of them. And it goes on, it says, his wrath, his wrath is on all their armies. He will totally destroy them. And he will give them over to slaughter. So that's early on in chapter 34. It's a little rough. And everything after verse 2 is just a spelling out of that utter destruction that it's talking about right here, of how complete the destruction will be. I mean, if you, if you caught it, it, it starts talking about a sword that is, that, is, that is dripping with blood coming from heaven. And there will be so many bodies because of this sword that there won't be enough graves to hold all of the bodies. Now, in, in this culture, 
There's no shame that exceeded the disgrace of being denied a decent burial. You can think of Jesus. After the shame of enduring the cross, Nicodemus went and and grabbed a borrowed tomb with hopes to save him from that ultimate disgrace. But that is not... Is that is not in the cards for these nations. There is no graves for them. There's just bodies stacked and laying around. And this is what that word totally destroyed means in verse 2. It's the Hebrew word harem. Everyone say harem. It means to be devoted over to the Lord for sacrifice. To be completely wiped out. It's a rough word. The only connection that I can think of if we're reading chapter 34 that we might be able to, to, to visualize in our everyday is I think is the fallout from, from nuclear radiation and to see something completely destroyed like that. Like when you see the before and after photos of Chernobyl, it's rough. When, when you, when you, if you remember this, 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 this explosion that happened in 1986 when they had some, some, some faulty uh, experiments they were trying to do to, to get this uh, nuclear power plant to work. But this explosion happened, and the explosion wasn't the worst part. It's all of the radiation that is continuing to this day to leak out of that to where this, this giant city has to be abandoned completely for how long? They said 20,000 years. It'll take, oh, just that long, 20,000 years, because the constant radiation just destroying the whole town. Now, I think even even worse than that, some of these images you can think of, you can think of the utter horrors of the bombs dropped on Hiroshima or Nagasaki. And we could just, we just, we have it in our power to do some pretty disgusting, horrible, and ugly things. To to reduce a beautiful world to just a radioactive desert. I mean, it's it's appalling. It's shocking to see these images and to see what all this is and and what all these images have in common is not a vicious God deciding to wreak punishment on humanity But what these images reveal is because we have become so insistent upon dominating the world that we think we must reduce it to an ash heap, we will. If that's what it takes, that's what we're going to do. Harem, totally destroyed. Now, throughout these chapters, it references not just all the nations, it actually starts referencing one nation in particular, Edom. If you're not... If you've not been with us for every sermon, or if you've not been a Bible scholar, you may be wondering, who is Edom? Why do I care? That's where most of us are at. (laughs) So join the club. Now, if you remember, Edom uh, and Israel have some bad blood. Edom is a cousin nation to Israel, like literally cousin nation. Edom was a person. He came from Esau, and Esau had a twin brother, a guy named Jacob, who they also called Israel. And so Jacob and Esau, you guys remember that? Jacob loved Esau, right? Um, and you remember the whole story. Jacob steals Esau's birthright. He's, Jacob does some pretty low things. He, there, there, is, there is bad blood between the two. And so Esau has, has children, and, and Edom comes from this, this, this line, and Edom doesn't even give safe passage to Israel when they're fleeing Pharaoh coming out of Egypt. 
That's how bad the blood is between them. Like, I'm not even going to give you safe passage. But even worse, coming to our time now, many think this is written after or during the exile in Edom, aided and abetted Babylon in stealing Israel out into exile, in kidnapping them. Your own blood, your own family was a part of your enslavement. Like you can, you can just feel the bad blood that's between them. It's so bad, it's like Taylor Swift bad blood, right? Like, uh, you're right, Taylor. You're right. Band-Aids don't fix bullet holes. And if you get nothing else from this sermon, take that. Band-Aids don't fix bullet holes. Okay. All kidding aside. Got to break up some of the ugliness of humanity here. It's in slavery when some of the most horrible things happen. It's in slavery when some of the most horrible and ugly things happen to God's people. And it's at that point that they are promised justice, fairness, what's right. And that is the only way to read Isaiah 34. Is in the context, like with an eye to the deliverer saving an oppressed people. Because this, what we're reading in Isaiah 34, is the poetry of the oppressed. It's the poetry of the oppressed. It's, it's the longings of liberation. And if you read Isaiah 34 without the context of all the horrors performed by all these nations against them, then yeah, harem or destruction sounds like a bit much. It feels like it's over the top. But if you've been living in an exile and watching your children be kidnapped and watching what they do to women as they're taken as objects, then we are seeing the devastation of these nations in their proper context. It's justice. So let's talk, go from justice, let's talk about joy. Joy. Isaiah 34 has to happen for Isaiah 35 to even be realized. Isaiah 34 has to happen for 35 to be possible. Like you must, you must clear the ground of weeds for, for the healthy vines to, to grow and to thrive, right? And that's what happens. And so no one can call Isaiah a prophet of doom. You can read Isaiah 34 and say, that's a pretty, pretty downer message. But Isaiah 35 comes right when you're like, that's all he is. But now he sings a song of restoration and joy. Isaiah 35.1 says this, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The land, can you think about that? The land shall be glad. Can you picture a land that's glad, right? The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Oh, it sounds too good to be true. Like, what, is it, what does it mean? Like, a, the desert is rejoicing. What do you even mean, Isaiah? And I think you get this picture of just this beautiful creation. You can think of like these flowers on these fields blossoming and just like trees growing, maybe trees even dancing in the wind. That's them rejoicing that they're healthy, right? And what was once dry and dead in Isaiah 34 is now full of life. And it's at this point that I think all of us are tempted to look at Isaiah and say, okay, sure, you're just a, a naive optimist, always hopeful, but is there really any foundation to that optimism? Is, are things actually going to get better? Or is this just optimistic dribble that you're peddling for us? And maybe some of you guys 
have felt like you've been living in the radioactive zone. Maybe you feel like you've been living in that zone. Life feels too dark, too drear, too dead. Is that you? Maybe there's someone you know who is self-destructing before your eyes and you wonder, is there any hope for them? And that's the question I want to ask us today. Is there any hope? Is there any hope? Is there any hope for me? Is there any hope for the church? I mean, when you see scandal after scandal and abuse after abuse, is there any hope? It's a a hard question because when all you can see is the ugliness and all that you can see is lifeless, it's like, look at this image of these lifeless trees. Like, if this is how you see the world, it's hard to hope that everything's dead and that every single human being is just living for themselves and they're living selfishly. And I want you to hear, it's, it's precisely at this moment where verse 3 in Isaiah 35 pops in. It's precisely in this moment. So if this is where you're at, I want you to tune in. He says, strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come, and he will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Oh. strengthen these, these feeble hands that you think of your hands that are, are no longer strong enough to even open up a, you know, a jar of jelly or whatever, right? Like, it's strengthen these, these, these hands because there's a symbol of powerlessness. These knees suggest an inability to move forward. The fearful heart is the one who has been traumatized again and again and is on the edge of frenzy because to live in this way constantly drains you it drains your body, it drains your, your mind, it drains your soul of its vitality, of its creativity, of its hope. And to you, he says, be strong. Strengthen. Be strong. He will come. Your God will come with vengeance and justice, and he will come to save you, to deliver you. And so what was lifeless will be no more. And you think that's pie-in-the-sky thinking, I want you to go back to that ecosystem analogy. Did you know that in China and, and in Saudi Arabia and in Australia, they have these deserts that are getting out of control, that are, that are growing? The deserts are just continuing to grow and, and eat up their ecosystems. And so just constant, dry, dead, arid land is growing, and it's sucking the life out of everything it touches And some of us feel like that's just the world we're living in right now, that there's a constant desert growing and growing and growing. And so these these countries have asked, you know, what can you do? What can you do? And and, in China, maybe you've heard about the the Great Wall of China. They've created the the Green Wall of China a couple years ago. They've planted over, or they're planting over 88 million acres of forests. And Saudi Arabia and Australia are starting to do some similar things, working on similar plans. And I want you to see this here. Because I think this is a stark contrast to, for you to hear that dead is not dead. Let me say that again. Dead is not dead. 
And when, it, when all you can look at and see is just dead, lifeless, no hope, I want you to hear and, and see that dead is not dead. There is still hope. There is still time for hope for that person that you're thinking of right now. Is there hope for them? Absolutely. For the situation you find yourself in, is there hope? Absolutely. There is, is there hope in life? Oh my goodness, yes. Isaiah 35 is, is, is just this anchor of hope in a sea of hopelessness. Like you may say, like, yeah, but I can't see a way out. I can't see how God can do anything. That's okay. That's usually when he works. That's when God works. It doesn't mean he won't. He makes a way when there is no way. And when you see God work in these miraculous ways, that's when you say, I can't do anything but rejoice. You ever find yourself just laughing uncontrollably? You're like, this is amazing. This is awesome. Because it's so good. This is, you can't help but rejoice. That's how joy comes. It's, it's a response to something. I think too many times we humans keep trying to create our own joy, trying to, try, trying to m- muster it up from inside, and it just never works, right? It's kind of like trying to become someone's best friend. The harder you try, the worse it gets, right? <laughs> like, I just really want to be their best friend. Why aren't they responding back to me? You're a little too much. Or someone vice versa is coming after you. You're like, it's not working that way. <laughs> it's, not, it's not working. The more you try, you, you just can't force it. And the same thing is true with joy. You just can't force it because joy is a response to something. You can't create it. It's a response to seeing a desert bloom and go, that's beautiful. That's awesome. And the reason joy doesn't seem to last is because if it's a response to something, then it appears that our joy is now dependent on something else. And you go, yeah, this isn't great advice as a pastor. You're saying put your joy in this person or put your joy in these things. I'm not saying that at all. That's what we do. We do put our joy in other people and other things. But I do think that's, that's, in a sense, there's the right way of seeing it, of saying that joy is a response to something. But what are we putting our joy and in, in hope in? All of these things will fail you. Yes, they will fail you. But joy is now dependent on something else. And so, yes, it puts you in a vulnerable place. But more amazing than a dry, arid nation become blossoming is the transformation of a human heart. That is amazing. The change of the environment from desert to garden is awesome. But more miraculous is, is a dead heart being transformed and coming to life. You may have seen this before with people. You're like, what's happened with you? You're different. You, you've changed. And how does that happen? How does God melt a heart of stone? How does God change anyone? This passage and and all of Scripture tell us the only way you can change is by meeting this person named Jesus. And this is our last point here. And and, and the last part of verse 4, it says, He will come to save you. Who is the he? Who is this that is coming to save you? Maybe the context will help. Let's go into verse 5. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. You can feel just the joy bubbling here. And water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Does this sound familiar to anyone? If you've read any of the Gospels, I mean, who healed the... Who healed the blind? Who made the deaf hear? Who made the lame be able to leap? 
That's Jesus. That sounds like Jesus to me. Luke 7.22 says, The blind will receive sight. The lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Jesus is telling John uh, the Baptist disciples, this is what I'm doing. This is a picture of my life. And so he is fulfilling what Isaiah is talking about. That's who has the power to bring life where there is no life. That's who has the power to actually give us joy. It's from the one who has made a way when there was no way. It's from the death defeater himself. And so the path to joy has to run through Jesus. The path to joy has to run through Jesus because Jesus doesn't deny the ugliness in our life. He still sees it. He doesn't, he doesn't overlook it. Jesus actually deals with it. He, he mends the broken heart, right? He's letting those who can't see, see. Those who can't hear, hear. He actually deals with these things. God is making these things right. And so you see, I want you to see Jesus is about joy and justice. Jesus is about joy and justice. And I think too many times we want to pit him into one of those two camps and say Jesus is only about joy or only about justice. And, 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 but Jesus is about both. Because Jesus loves his people, he's committed to your well-being. He's committed to protecting you. He's committed to you living in a just society. This is where in Isaiah 34, 8, it says, For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of retribution, to uphold Zion's cause. Now, vengeance is a, is a near cousin to justice. Vengeance is punishment inflicted or retribution extracted for a wrong that was caused, right? In Revelation, you, you see Jesus, and, and it talks about Jesus early on in Revelation. He's got these eyes just blazing with fire, and he has this double-edged sword. And so Jesus is coming with justice. Jesus is all about justice, and he will enact justice. Now notice this passage. It's God that's enacting vengeance. And in case we miss it, um, in, in Romans, uh, God says it this way. He's quote, got, uh, Paul is quoting from Deuteronomy 32. And says, vengeance is mine, God's. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. That's a hard passage, right? Because if you have, actually have seen injustice, it's really hard to love that person. Like, you want justice. And, then, and we're, we're told to feed the enemy, to give him a cup of cold water. I know it's hard. I mean, that, that's how Jonah felt, right? Jonah, you and Jonah, if, if that's where you're at, you, you'd be friends. Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he, he wanted those Assyrians to suffer for all the suffering that they had caused against Israel. And so, as I said, Jesus is about justice and joy. You can't pit justice against joy. Jesus is about both justice and but he's also about joy, about redeeming, about mercy and grace. I think many times we, we, we want to say something like this. Justice for thee, but mercy for me. You said that? You probably not said that, but you may believe it. Justice for thee, mercy for me. Or mercy for me and justice for thee. Right? It's, it's I want you to get what's coming to you because that's only right and true. But for me, grace, mercy, forgiveness. That's what we believe, right? <laughs> and so I think sometimes we're selective in how this works. But, but Jesus wants justice for all and mercy for all. 
How does that work? Huh. Ooh, tell me, Lord. <laughs> How does that work? Why does he want it? Because he loves his creation. He wants justice because he, he loves you. He wants to give mercy. And because you and I are at ground zero for injustices in this world, he wants to give you mercy as well. And it's only by the grace of Jesus that we don't get justice. Amen? The wonderful thing about this passage is the vivid, vivid contrast between justice and joy. The vivid contrast between justice and joy, and then there's the universal call that all who want mercy and grace can find it. Because then at the end of 35, it starts speaking of this highway. This, this wonderful, wonderful highway. This path. Verse 8 in 35, it says, And a highway shall be there, and, out shall, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. So it's a very high bar of justice there. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. Hmm. Later it talks about the redeemed also be called the ransomed. And, and what is this road? What is this highway? I think it's the same way, the same path that Jesus talks about in John 14, 6, where he says, I am the way, the truth, the life. That Jesus himself is the highway, that he is the path. That the, 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 way, of, the way of Jesus, the way of justice, the way of joy runs through Jesus. Because in Jesus you have both justice and mercy, complete at the cross, you have, you have the love of God and the justice of God coming together, commingling down, and it's the only way for us to make sense of all of this, that you have both justice and joy right here. And so Isaiah 34 and 35 remind us of three things, the seriousness of sin, the beauty of restoration, and the availability of salvation for all. It reminds us of the seriousness of sin, the beauty of restoration, and the availability of salvation for all. And so is there hope? Absolutely, right? Is there hope? Absolutely. If God can redeem these lands, if he can change my heart, he can do anything, right? I mean, he can do anything. He can, he can make things reappear. He can, make, he can make life when there is no life. He can do that. And so what's the application for you and me as we go today? First, as we talk about the seriousness of sin, you cannot read... Isaiah 34, and think it's wise to just mess around with sin. And so how, God is going to wipe away all evil, we're told, including the ones that we're tolerating, including the ones that we're playing with. And so what, what is it that you are tolerating? Do you allow to linger and say, no big deal, just mercy and grace? God doesn't see it that way. That's the seriousness of sin here. But two, it's the beauty of restoration. Do you allow yourself to hope? Hmm. That's a hard one for some of us. Do we allow ourselves to hope? You have the gift of seeing the brokenness in this world, and I'm thankful. I, I love partnering with you. But do you allow yourself to hope? To actually hope for something, to hope God will work. Do you hope someone is restored, or do you wish their destruction like Jonah? 
Let me give you a verse that's been on my heart, and I hope we as a church will embody this. This is from 1 Corinthians 13. This is kind of your, your love chapter, right? It says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And so bears, believes, hopes, and endures all things. Do we hope? We have an endless supply of hope for someone. Do we actually hope their restoration, hope the best for them, and hope that they would turn from their sin, hope that God is merciful, yes, but also hope for justice? Because we don't want this to continue on. We don't want this evil to continue on. We want things to be set right. And so let's do away with all of this justice for thee but not for me stuff. Let's hope justice for all and mercy for all. And then the availability of salvation for all. There's that, that highway that has many on-ramps. That highway has many on-ramps. And I hope more come to know this beautiful Savior. I do. And I hope some today would come to know this and, and get in the highway and follow this Savior. Because why? Because I believe Jesus is all about joy and justice. It's, it's a beautiful mendling. And not just one, but both, about joy and justice. And I, I pray that we would be a people marked by both G, justice and joy. And I would just say, striving after justice is an act of faith. Because when all you see is injustice, it's really hard to continue on. And so it's an act of faith to strive for it. But also striving for joy and actively rejoicing in the face of evil around us, that is an act of faith as well. And I would say, do not let the darkness win. Do not let the darkness crowd out the light. And so we have to fight for joy. We have to fight to rejoice. And that is an act of faith. But no, you don't fight alone. You fight with brothers and sisters who encourage you. And you can look back on the many, many, many victories Jesus has already done. Let me pray for us.